Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the review of Stanley's War. It's January 1944. Stanley and his guys are about to graduate from bomber school in Carlsbad, New Mexico. However, before they do, they have to receive an honorable discharge. And so each of them receives official paperwork. And the king received his document, numbered 182837, titled Army of the United States, Honorable Discharge. This is to certify that Stanley L. Silverfield, 1410064, Aviation Cadet, Headquarters and Headquarters Squadron of the 319th Bomber Training Operations, Army of the United States, is hereby honorably discharged from the military service of the United States of America. This certificate is awarded as a testimonial of the honest and faithful service to his country, given at the Army Air Force Base, Carlsbad Army Airfield, Carlsbad, New Mexico. The date is 14 January 1944. Signed by Stephen Sikovich, Major Air Corps. One day later, on 15 January 1944, the Silver King graduates from bomber school. He receives two important documents. The first is his final grade sheet, and it's from the headquarters, the Army Air Force's Bombardier School, Office of the Director of Training at Carlsbad Army Airfield, Carlsbad, New Mexico, and it's dated January 15, 1944. It reads, this is to certify that Air Cadet Silverfield, comma, Stanley L., Air Force Service Number 14103064 in the class of 44-1 has completed so much of the prescribed course of instruction at this school with this degree of proficiency indicated below. In ground school, he had a final grade average of 87.5. In flying training, he dropped 166 bombs. The record of bombings dropped were 40. An average calculated error to date was 187, and the maximum allowable error at this stage was 230. Combat bombing, number of bombs dropped, 68 Percentage of hits at 24.6 with a maximum allowable rate of 22.5. Navigation flights and flying time of 106 hours and 50 minutes. Proficiency ratings and military training satisfactory, physical training satisfactory, bomb training satisfactory, and blinker system and code passing. Graduated January 15, 1944. Signed, John J. Costello, 1st Lieutenant, Air Corps, 
school secretary. Stanley's most valuable sheet of paper in the early part of his war is from the headquarters of the Army Air Force's Western Flying Training Command at 1104 West 8th Street in Santa Ana, California. Addressed to Silverfield, Stanley L., Class 44-1 Bomb, dated 15 January 1944. Subject, Temporary Appointment. Two, Second Lieutenant Stanley Lester Silverfield, Army of the United States, parenthetical Birmingham, Alabama, at the Carlsbad Army Airfield in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Serial number 0-765449. Item 1. The Secretary of War has directed me to inform you that the President has appointed and commissioned you a temporary Second Lieutenant, Army of the United States, effective this date. Your serial number is shown after A above. Item 2. This commission will continue in force during the pleasure of the President of the United States for the time being and for the duration of the war and six months thereafter unless sooner terminated. Item 3. There is enclosed herewith a form for oath of office which you are requested to execute and return. The execution and return of the required oath of office constitute an acceptance of your appointment. No other evidence of acceptance is required. Item 4. This letter should be retained by you as evidence of your appointment as no commission will be issued during the war. By command of Major General Cousins, signed Charles S. Ricker, Captain, Air Corps, Acting Assistant Adjutant General, with one enclosure, form of oath of office. Appointment accepted, oath administered at the Army Air Force Base, Carlsbad Army Airfield, Carlsbad, New Mexico. Order to active duty at the Army Air Force's Base, Carlsbad Army Airfield, Carlsbad, New Mexico, on 15 January 1944. Stanley's graduation service was exciting in an auditorium filled with family, friends, and relatives, including his mother, Sarah Bell Silverfield. And all attendees heard from the commanding officer, J.P. Ryan, who addressed his aviation cadets this way. Aviation cadets. Brothers, bombardiers, you have finally completed your training and received your commission as officers in the United States Army Air Forces. The school is proud of your achievements, and each individual instructor is proud of his work. However, while you are better trained at this point than the majority of those bombardiers who have made the name famous, you will still receive further training whether you go to active combat duty or remain to instruct others. So far, your instruction might be compared to college work. You now go into the postgraduate phase. We are all sure you will carry the same enthusiasm, discipline, and loyalty which you have shown here into the next phase. In the not-too-distant future, some and in all probability the majority of you will serve on the many battlefronts of the world. 
Yours is a new profession, and it has added to the relatively few battle slogans of the United States Armed Services, such as, Don't give up the ship and don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. A brand new and inspiring symbol, Bombs Away. Today, now and forever, it's Bombs Away, Class 44-1. Good luck and Godspeed. I salute you as warriors. Congratulations and good luck. And now, the valedictorian of the class turns to the audience as he addresses his fellow officers and reads, Farewell, our cadet training ended. We bid farewell to the land of enchantment and to Carlsbad Army Airfield. As old friends part, we give voice to the prayer that when our mission is completed and the right hand of fellowship is once more extended throughout the world, history will record. Well done, 44-1. Carry on. After bomber school graduation, Stanley and his guys, John Sherry and Herb Stempler, friends and fellow bombardiers, begin a cross-country trip that will take them from Carlsbad, New Mexico, to Columbia, South Carolina, for their next assignment at the Columbia Army Air Base. They're due to report for advanced training on February 6th, 1944. Stanley's life as a second lieutenant in the Army Air Corps offers privileges, perks, and a crisp uniform life. Stanley and his guys will spend five months from February through June at Columbia Army Air Base in South Carolina. He was able to live off base and enjoy some private time in a nice private home. And over those months, he would take long trips and learn to ride and fly big planes. Stanley and his guys were training in thorough and mysterious ways because the crews didn't know what their war destination might be, Europe or the Pacific. It made them edgy. But in the Silver King's case, his tension dissipated in mid-June when he received orders to pack and report to Shreveport, Louisiana for advanced training on the B-26, the Martin Marauder. Stanley's pending assignment to Shreveport was the result of some airtime that he didn't get due to some long trips and delays in his training. The delays and change in Air Corps strategy regarding their personnel meant that Stanley would move within the states from South Carolina to Louisiana and spend a hot and humid summer learning to ride the B-26. Stanley was taken off shipment and his crew on June 2nd. The Air Corps commanders had rewritten orders, which meant that only celestial navigation units would fly in the B-25s. Ten days later, on June 12th, Stanley received his orders for Barksdale and the B-26. He was thrilled. As Stanley continued his advanced training in the spring of 1944, the Western Allies were building an ambitious plan 
for an invasion of Europe. In May 1944, the Western Allies were finally prepared to deliver what became their greatest blow of the Second World War, which was the long-delayed and cross-channel invasion of northern France with the code name of Overlord. General Dwight David Eisenhower was the supreme commander of this operation, which ultimately involved the coordination of 12 nations. The Allies' deliberations about their attack meant a decision that the landings for the invasion would happen on the long, sloping beaches of Normandy. There, the Allies would have the element of surprise— because they thought the German command expected the attack to come in the Pas de Calais region, north of the River Seine, where the English Channel is narrowest. It was here that Adolf Hitler had put much of his panzer divisions after being alerted by agents posing as German sympathizers that the invasion would take place near Calais. Surprise was essential to the Allied invasion plan and its success, because if the Germans knew more about where the Allies were landing, their 55 divisions had a good chance of pushing them back into the ocean. The challenges of a successful landing were daunting. The English Channel was notorious for its rough seas and unpredictable weather and the enemy had spent months constructing what was called the Atlantic Wall, 2,400 miles of obstacles. This defensive line was built around over 6 million mines and tons of concrete and bunkers and pillboxes with heavy and fast-firing artillery and thousands of tank ditches and many, many obstacles. And the German army, of course, would be dug in on the cliffs that were overlooking the American landing beaches. The Allied leaders had designated June 5th as the invasion's D-Day, but on the morning of June 4th, the weather over the English Channel was terrible, and Eisenhower changed the plan of attack, moved it back a day. And, of course, the delay was a challenge for all of the allies who were waiting to do their jobs in the invasion. A sudden break in the weather forecast meant that the weather would clear over the channel on June 6th, and so Eisenhower said the plan was a go. After midnight on June 6th, the Allied airborne troops began dropping behind enemy lines. Their jobs were to blow up the bridges and sabotage rail lines and take many measures to prevent the enemy from moving reinforcements to the beaches. Hours later, the largest amphibious landing force ever assembled began moving through the storm-tossed waters towards the beaches. Most of the Americans were packed into flat-bottom Higgins boats that were launched from troop transports 10 miles from the coastline. The Allied planners divided the landing zones into five beaches. The British and Canadians landed at Juneau Gold and Sword Beaches, the Americans at Omaha and Utah. 
The fiercest fighting was on Omaha Beach, where the enemy was positioned over steep cliffs that commanded the long, flat shoreline. The landing warriors suffered an incredible loss rate. 35,000 men went ashore that day, and more than 13% of them were either killed, wounded, or missing. By nightfall, about 175,000 Allied troops and over 50,000 vehicles were ashore, and a million more men were on their way that summer. D-Day and the Normandy invasion are often considered one of the greatest turning points in the history of 20th century warfare. A very large army began to arrive in Nazi-occupied Europe, and that never changed. And then the Germans were threatened by a large Soviet invasion from the east that reached the gates of Berlin by the following April. Now the Germans were forced to fight on two fronts, the Allies from the West and the Soviets from the East, and the course of the war began to change. As the Allies pushed the Germans further into France and ultimately back into Germany, Stanley's summer of training on the B-26 continued. He was working hard. The weather was hot, but he was enjoying every day. And, of course, following the news of the Americans in Europe and in the Pacific and wondering when it would be his turn to go to war. And as the Silver King learns to fly the B-26 in Shreveport, Louisiana, at Barksdale Army Air Base, we have reached the end of this episode of our review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.